Jack, it just occurred to me this third service, having sung that song three times, I would much rather sing those words to that tune than uh, Old Lang Syne. I never knew what that song was about anyway. And it struck me that would be a much better song to sing, to ring in the New Year's, huh? Yes. Let's, let's, who do we need to, how do we make that decision? Do I hear a second? Can we get a motion or something at least for, okay. That is great. Much rather sing that. Um, Connor, would you just put up that slide I was asking you for? I also thought as we were singing this, just this last service, the first two lines, this prayer, we were singing, Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. And as I was thinking about this passage and where we're about to head, I was thinking it would also be appropriate to ask the Lord to breathe new life into my unwilling soul. <laughs> right? We need both. Some of us are in here with willing souls. We are saying, Lord, speak to me. I want to yield. And, and, and to some of us, maybe to uh, some degree, are saying, I'm not so willing, Lord. But uh, let me pray. Stop and do just that. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak uh, whatever the posture of our souls are right now. Lord, we thank you so much for these huge promises uh, and truths that we're singing about, that the glory of Christ, the power and authority and the rule and reign of Christ that is sure and one day will be um, complete uh, and eternal. Um, God, I pray too uh, about the inward groaning that we read about again in Romans and Lord, many, so many of us this morning can immediately relate to ways that uh, living in the world that's broken right now causes groaning. And uh, I pray you'd encourage us this morning, Lord, lift our, our eyes back up to you. Give us hope again this morning. And I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe uh, life into our, our souls, whether they're willing or not. If they are unwilling this morning, that you would convict um, and humble and enlighten uh, our understanding so that then we might respond more willingly. And Lord, for, for those of us whose hearts are willing and eager right now, Lord, I pray you'd, you'd, uh, you'd teach us through your word, um, bear fruit uh, because of Jesus uh, in this passage. And we ask you this in his name. Amen. Amen. If you would turn in, Mark, uh, to your, in your Bible to Mark 11, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to provide one for you either to use this morning or if you don't have one to keep. Uh, just put your hand up if that's you and one of our ushers will come find you and, and slip a Bible to you uh, down your row. Mark chapter 11. You know, the, the way we have just ascribed authority to Jesus so far this morning in all of these hymns is a stark contrast uh, to, to the, the men in this passage that are going to confront Jesus here. I mean, we are saying things this morning, all glory be to Christ, the King, that one day all the world uh, he will command, the suffering servant will command, and that he rules and reigns, that we are not our own but his, and that everything that has life and breath owes honor and praise to Christ. He is in, uh, the one of all authority. And here in this passage, if uh, your Bible, like mine, has a little title over this one scene we're going to look at, it either says, if you have the ESV, the authority of Jesus challenged, or maybe if you have the NIV or NASB, it's, it's even more gracious. It says the authority of Jesus questioned. Um, but I think as we're going to see here, um, you could probably say it more strongly. This is really about the authority of Jesus being rejected rejected. They do ask a question, but it's an insincere question. 
It's more of a, uh, a baited uh, question, a veiled threat. Um, and it is a challenge of sorts, but as you're going to see, uh, these men are, are, are quite cowardly, and uh, uh, it, it's not really much of a challenge. It doesn't prove much of a challenge, but it is evidence of clear, stubborn rejection of what Mark has been showing us for chapter after chapter in this gospel, and that is that Jesus um, is God that he is king, uh, and he has the authority of God. And these men reject that, which we're, we're going to see. So um, my outline is a little bit different this morning. I, I'm, we are just going to walk one verse at a time and see how this little confrontation unfolds uh, play by play. And then I want to talk about, at the end, two sobering, I think, truths about rejecting God's or Jesus' authority. So two sobering things about what it means to reject Jesus' authority. So, um, so let's dive in. Instead of reading it all the way through, I'm just going to read one verse at a time and, uh, and we'll unpack it. So it starts here, verse 27, with the confrontation. And they, Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So here's the scene. They are in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus has said three times in this gospel to his disciples and to us, reading along, um, that he is in Jerusalem to die, to suffer, be crucified, die, and rise again. And two of the three times he said it, he also mentioned who is going to play an instrumental role uh, in putting him on the cross. Look at uh, or Mark 8.31 says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That also must happen. That he's going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes. Chapter 11, verse 33, Jesus said it again. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So not only is Jesus going to die, um, but there are certain ones who are going to do that to Jesus. Um, And so here they are. They're in Jerusalem. And it says again because they were just here the day before, right? Think back to last week's message. Uh, Rob Lister, I believe, was preaching here. Gerald is preaching on this passage, uh, that last passage today at Fullerton. But um, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple with his disciples, into this courtyard, this Gentile court, this area that that non-Jews were allowed to come in and approach and offer prayer and worship to the God of Israel. And all this money changing and commerce is going in there. And Jesus comes in and, and, and causes a scene, starts flipping over tables and knocking over chairs and spilling money and telling everyone who's carrying anything to stop that. He, may, he stops everyone from carrying anything and, he, and he, he brings us to a grinding halt and then he publicly denounces the spiritual leaders, these priests and scribes and elders, for failing and actually taking God's temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, and turning it into a den of thieves. A very un-Messiah-like thing, I think, uh, according to the expectations of these chief priests and scribes and elders. When Messiah comes, Messiah is supposed to overthrow the the oppressive Romans and the the Gentiles and restore Israel to its place and purify the temple. And here comes Jesus saying, no, 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 move the obstacles out for the nations and keep this as a place that the nations can stream to for prayer. Jesus does the opposite, and then he drops the mic and he leaves the city. 
goes back to Bethany, and now he's back again the next day. Well, after he left, Mark told us that the chief priests and the scribes again, because of that galling thing that Jesus did in the temple, they are seeking to destroy Jesus. But Mark also says that they're afraid of Jesus. Particularly, they're afraid of his popularity. All the people are following Jesus and there's this fervor. He's entered the city with these palm branches and this, this you know, processional and people are walking around and listening to his teaching and they're afraid. And so it says they're seeking to destroy him. And what they're seeking is a way to destroy him that doesn't have bad fallout on them, right? How do we get him killed but also not take a hit ourselves, right? So they can't just destroy him. They're, they're seeking a way to destroy him. So that's some of what's going on here in this scene. So, so here's Jesus uh, and his disciples at the temple and they're walking around, it says, in the temple. And Luke tells us they're not just sightseeing and they're not just praying, but they're teaching. Jesus is teaching the people and preaching the gospel the very next day. So I imagine there's a lot of people. I mean, it's a crowded area, a lot of noise. And then here's Jesus with his disciples and all these crowds listening and he's teaching. And at some point, this delegation, it says, of chief priests and scribes and elders come to him. This is an important uh, group of people. This is a delegation from the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, scribes, and elders are all members of the highest authority in Israel underneath Rome. But as far as Israel, Jews are concerned, these men have the most power and authority. There were 71 members of this ruling body, and they not only ruled over religious matters, but also under Rome um, had authority over uh, political issues and, and judicial matters as well. I mean, these were important, powerful men. And it says that as Jesus was teaching and walking in the temple, uh, they came to him. So try to picture it. Here's Jesus teaching and all the crowds, you know, tight in, uh, listening to him. And at some point, all of a sudden, you know, the crowds must have started to part as these men men started pushing their way through and they finally made it to the front and at some point Jesus would have stopped and there must have been this moment of uh-oh right I mean what happened the day before I'm sure was known to all these people here and it's like uh-oh Jesus is busted and here they come and there's this confrontation they interrupt Jesus mid-teaching and they ask him a question verse 28 here's the bait They say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? It's not really an honest question, but they want to know what gives you the right to do these things. These things are probably what what he just did the day before, uh, stopping all of this commerce that's going on and calling out uh, the, the spiritual leaders and putting himself over them by saying that they were in the wrong and teaching this to all the people and spreading this uh, opinion about their leadership and preaching the gospel to these crowds. I mean, they're saying, what gives you the right to come into this place and do those things? But it's not an honest question. I think it's bait. I think it's a trap. I think they're trying they've failed to to discredit Jesus in a way that all the people say, oh, he's nobody. And they just stop following him. That hasn't worked. And so now I think they're trying to get Jesus to say something that will make Rome agree and say, "This, this man needs to be done away with. And this would help if Jesus in the temple publicly says, by my own authority, 
claims his own authority. And so they're trying to get an answer, I think, from Jesus here. Um, It's not sincere. If he says, by my own authority, they're not going to say, oh, great, that clears everything up. Rebuke taken, you know. No, they they already have their minds made up. They want Jesus to say something here, and he's not going to play their game. He's not going to get trolled by these um, delegates from the, the Sanhedrin. So verse 29 is the turn. He turns their agenda around, back around on them. He pauses and he says, okay, I'll answer your question, but I have one for you first. Let's read uh, verse 29. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority uh, I do these things. He sees through uh, their question. He does this often, doesn't he? In these interchanges, someone comes up and throws out a question with an agenda and Jesus sees the agenda and goes right around it and he takes his own agenda. And Jesus, I don't think here, is sidestepping uh, in uh, a cowardly way like they are about to do with him. I don't think Jesus is afraid at all of answering these guys directly. I don't think his, his question is, is a sort of a sneaky no comment uh, to, to avoid um, what they might do. In just a few days, he's going to get arrested. He's going to stand again before this body and the chief priest is going to look Jesus in the eye and say, are you the Christ, the son of uh, the blessed? And he's going to answer plainly, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. <laughs> he's going to say, you remember Daniel, that son of man? I am. And one day you're going to see me in that place of power and authority. So he is not afraid to look at these men and and answer their question directly. But he's not going to do it right here and now. Not only is he, he's not ready to go to the cross quite yet, but he also is going to make a point. He's going to expose their stubborn unbelief and their cowardly leadership. And he's going to also put that on display for everyone else watching. So he asks them a question first. He says, I'll answer your question, but first I have a question for you. And here it is, verse 30, the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I like that last little part. You answer me. I have a question for you. Answer me. But he goes to the baptism of John, which at first might seem like, wait, wait, what? We're not talking about John. We're talking about you. By what authority are you doing these things? But his question, he points all the way back to John the Baptist and his whole ministry, I think, not just the baptizing he was doing, but what the baptism was a, the reason for it, right? Mark 1 makes it clear that John was a prophet, that after centuries of God no longer sending prophets and, and, and Israel waiting uh, for God to speak again, here comes this one in the wilderness preaching things that sounded familiar from Isaiah and the prophets. God is, gonna prepare, is calling his people to be prepared, make straight uh, a path for the Lord. He's sending Messiah. And John is the one saying, you want to be prepared? He's coming? Come out, acknowledge your sin, humble yourself, be baptized as an, an outward symbol of that repentance, and you will be ready to receive the one who's coming after me. Why does Jesus ask this question? Why does he ask them what they think about John? Do they recognize God's authority behind John's ministry? And I think it's because Jesus is saying, well, God has actually already answered your question through John and his ministry. 
two things that John clearly did. One, he clearly represented himself as being um, sent by God to prepare God's people for Messiah. He understood that that's what he was doing and that was what his, 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 his mission uh, given by God was. Um, to prepare the way. Um, And he also endorsed Jesus as the one he was preparing people for. He did both. So he said things like, Mark 1, 7 and 8, after me is coming one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then you remember John comes, uh, Jesus comes out to be baptized by John. And at first John is reluctant. He's thinking, wait, me baptize you? But Jesus says, yes, this is the way it's supposed to be. And John says, okay. And he, he baptizes Jesus. And there's this, this miraculous, this theophany, this manifestation of God, his voice and visibly this, this uh, vision of his Holy Spirit falling on Jesus like a dove. And the voice says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's this divine endorsement of Jesus as the one John was preparing the way from, for. And after that, John continued to testify about Jesus that yes, in fact, he was. Jesus pointed, uh, John pointed Jesus out and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man ranking before me because he was before me. And so John had clearly claimed authority from heaven. And he had also, in his ministry, pointed forward to Jesus as having authority from heaven. And these things weren't a secret to the Sanhedrin. It's not like, well, everyone out there in the outlying parts had heard this and it just hadn't made its way to Jerusalem. All the way back during John's ministry, they were aware of John's ministry and what was being said. The Gospel of John tells us that during John the Baptist's ministry, priests and Levites were sent down from Jerusalem to investigate all this. So they saw people being baptized. They heard John's preaching. They heard his claims. And not only did John the Baptist's ministry endorse Jesus' uh, claim of authority, but then Mark has been showing us for the first eight chapters that everywhere he went, his words and his works attested to his authority, right? Right? Crowds everywhere would hear him teach and say, who speaks like this? We've never heard anyone talk with this kind of authority. He claims to forgive sin, and then he heals chronic disability and and incurable disease and, and casts out demons with a word, and he commands wind and waves, and he walks on water, and he multiplies bread, and he raises the dead. Later on in Acts, Peter is going to preach on Pentecost, and he's going to say... Um, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs which were done through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So these were not, this, was, this was evidence that the, the Sanhedrin had, that these leaders had. I think Jesus' question is really driving them to an answer to their original question to him. Again, I think it's actually gracious of Jesus. He's, he's, one more time, he's trying to say, guys, connect the dots here. Think of what you've been seeing. Think. But his question puts them in between the horns of a dilemma. They don't like either way that this would force them to answer. And so they huddle up and they try to figure out how to squirm out of this. This has gotten very awkward for them very fast. But notice one question that they, they aren't going to ask. They're not going to huddle up and say, hey, guys, were we wrong? <laughs> they don't ask that. 
They don't say, let's stop here a minute. Let's answer this carefully. Were we wrong about John? What, What do you think? No, that decision's already made by them. They huddle up and all this is now is damage control. How do we get out of this situation without looking bad? And neither side of this, uh, neither answer seems very appealing to them. So verse 31, here's the one hand. They discuss it and they say, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe in him? That's the first horn of the dilemma. If we lie and we say from God, which we don't believe, we then are openly acknowledging we have rejected God's plan. We are in sin. So we can't say that. We're doubly guilty. We would be doubly guilty, one, of rejecting John, God's messenger, and, and refusing and saying, denying that we need to repent and be prepared for Messiah, but also then for rejecting Messiah as he's, as he's come. So they can't answer that. They don't believe it, and they're not willing to. And so that's not an option. So uh, verse, uh, wait, let me say one thing about that. They do understand something very true there. And that's this. If Jesus does have God's authority, then they ought to believe in him and obey, right? That is one of the central questions in the gospel, this gospel of Mark, right? The central question about Jesus. Let's just go right there. If Jesus indeed has the authority he claims to have, then that's a game changer. To acknowledge he has that authority then means you either yield to it or you stand judged by him right? So to acknowledge authority, what comes along with that, ought to come along with that, is belief and submission. And they're unwilling to to do both. So they reject that. That's not an option. So verse 32, we see the other hand. They say, but shall we say from man? That's what all the people think. Should we say that? Keep everybody happy? Mark says, they were afraid of the people. They all held that John was really a prophet. They can't say that. Sorry, that's not what all the people think. If we say from man, that's contrary to what all the people think, and that'll get them in hot water. So they can't say that either. Um, So not only does Jesus point out with this simple question, one, that they are rejecting his authority and they are sitting in unbelief, but number two, that they're cowards, that the shepherds of Israel are cowards. Because if Jesus, in fact, is an imposter... And he is trying to lead Israel away from covenant faithfulness to God, then they should be quick to say, from man, from man. John was, you are. But they don't say it, even though they don't believe in him. They're cowards. So here they are. We don't want to say from man, we don't want to say from heaven. Well, there's only one other option left, and that's what they go with. Verse 33 the dodge. They answer Jesus. They huddle, huddle, huddle. We do not know. (laughs) Everyone's watching as the experts in the law and the prophets and the scriptures need to say, yeah, we we don't know. We can't call this one. That's embarrassing too. But that's what they opt for. That's the the least bad, I guess, from their perspective. So they say, we don't know. They, They suddenly are agnostic about Jesus. They come busting through the crowd asking the question. They don't seem very agnostic. But all of a sudden, when the question is put to them like this, they say, we, we don't know. And so Jesus wasn't lying. He, I, I think if they would have answered his question directly, he probably would have answered, but they didn't. And so the conversation's over, and Jesus says, well, neither will I answer you then. 
I wish I knew what happened next. How did that thing break up? You know, like what, what happened next when he goes, all right, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. I mean, he didn't say anything else. I don't know. They just finally slink back through the crowd and I'll, I'll look at their sundial or something. I have something I have to get to. Like all of a sudden it's just over. Jesus just says, I have nothing more to say to you then. If you're playing games like this with me, um, then I have nothing more to say to you. We'll come back to that. But number one, sobering observation um, about rejecting Jesus' authority is this. And it applies not just to these men, but I think to the heart of sin for every one of us. But notice here, their, their root problem in their rejecting Jesus' authority isn't ignorance, it's rebellion. Their unbelief isn't for a lack of evidence. It's for a lack of willingness to submit. They've had about as much revelation of who Jesus is, what he can do, what he's saying. Add to that their knowledge of the scriptures behind and undergirding that. They have lots of revelation and and, uh, information and evidence. As Mark Dever put it, they're not rejecting Jesus because they're dumb, but because they're bad. That's a very simple but honest way of putting it. They're rejecting Jesus, not because they're just not sure, but because they will not yield. They don't want him as king. They don't want to acknowledge that. The reason Jesus has nothing else to say to their pretend agnosticism uh, is because They don't lack any evidence. There's nothing more that Jesus can add. It's not like, well, did you know about that? I mean, there's nothing more he can say. That's what the question about John was getting at. That's what the testimony and witness about John was getting at. That's what all all these words and works of Jesus were, were getting at. It's not that they're not sure. It's that they're not willing. Now, I want us to think, it doesn't mean that they weren't ignorant. Paul, the apostle Paul later said, of, of, of his life as one of these kind of guys before he trusted Christ. He said, back then when I was persecuting church, the church, I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. So ignorance is part of it. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says this about all spiritual blindness. He says, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So blindness is behind all rejection of Jesus' authority and glory. But the Bible says this is a kind of blindness that we can be held responsible for and be guilty of, which could sound weird because you'd think, how can you hold someone um, responsible for um, blindness? That doesn't sound fair, right? How can you blame something for something they can't see? The first service, Patrick Klancik was sitting right around here and I said, that rhetorical question, how can you blame someone for something they can't see? And he says, if they close their eyes. <laughs> that's a, I'm like, it was a rhetorical question, but actually, that's a great answer. If they close their eyes, yes, they can be held responsible. If, if we contribute something to this blindness, we are, we are culpable, right? And, and we do. In our sin, our sin nature, our, in our, our, our rebellious hearts cloud our vision. We are terribly self-deceived in our sin. Our capacity to self-justify and self-deceive is staggering. In John 3, Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus, who was also a Pharisee and a ruler of Jews. And 
And he'd seen some evidence of Jesus' authority, but he was still sitting in unbelief. And Jesus says this, John 3, 19, he says, well, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Well, because their works were evil. That's why they love the darkness more. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This spiritual blindness in, in part is, I don't, I don't want to see that. In Romans 1, Paul says we do this not just with Jesus, but even more broadly in our sin with God himself and his clear evidence of his own existence in the world. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppressing truth is another way of saying, I don't want to come to the light. I don't want to look at that. Suppressing the truth is denying what's being shown, right? And he goes on, he says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So it's, he's saying blind but not blind. They've been clearly perceived in the things that have been made and so they're without excuse, Paul says. For although they knew God, they could see these things that were clearly made clear, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened unrighteousness leads to suppressing truth and it can lead to futile thinking and and foolishness can cause our hearts to darken is what Paul's saying. In other words, bad hearts contribute to bad sight. Yes, we need information. Yes, we need truth. Yes, many people reject Jesus' authority for some really uh, clear reasons that they've thought through and we need to reason and we need to defend. Um, but, but Jesus is also showing here in this scene or the, the, the Sanhedrin by example is you can defend and give all the evidence you want and it can still be denied because of rebelliousness, right? Well, that was true of these leaders. They weren't willing to submit to Jesus' divine authority I think it's the camel and the needle, eye of the needle principle going on here again with them just like it was with that rich young man. Different idols, but same problem, right? What was the problem with this rich man? Jesus puts his finger on the thing which this man loved more than the idea of obeying God and following Jesus. He had many things and he went away sad, right? And Jesus says to his disciples, it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, to yield their authority and submit to the authority of the one God sent. So hard. Why? Because submitting to Jesus, going through the eye of that needle, you can't do that and bring your, your idols along with you. And so we know some things about these leaders. In Mark 12, calls the scribes out for things like this. They love walking around in long robes and getting greeted in the marketplace and having the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts. Meanwhile, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. And See, there are things that these men are not willing <laughs> to be without, not willing to yield. They were so committed, I think, to holding their position and their power and their honor and their control that, that they are completely unwilling then to yield that to Jesus. That changes everything. The crazy thing, in John's gospel, after Lazarus is raised, he's been dead four days, is raised, 
These, these chief priests and Pharisees know about it and they gather together, they huddle up again, they say, what should we do for this man performs many signs? They don't say, what should we do? Everyone thinks this man has done this thing that he didn't do. No, he says, everyone knows that he's done these things. If we let him go on, everyone's gonna believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If he wins, we're going to lose. I think that, that that's the lie that fuels this rejection of Jesus' authority for us. It's this thought that yielding, uh, giving up authority and, igno- and ascribing it to Jesus is going to be a loss for me. And it is going to be a loss, right? Discipleship is costly. Jesus, there are things that Jesus demands that we don't want to give, Right? And there are things that Jesus forbids that we do not want to give up. And so it can feel like to yield to Jesus' authority is going to be a loss for me. It is in one respect, but Jesus has already said in this gospel, this crazy paradoxical nature of if you submit everything to me and you yield your life, you forfeit your life to me and my authority, you'll save it. What you think will save it, clutching it, holding it, and and living as as the authority over your life and not yielding it because I've got this, that's how you lose your life. But the lie is easy for us to believe. It feels like there are these things that we don't want to lose, and so we don't want to, to give all authority to Christ. We want to keep it ourselves. It keeps many, many, many from ever coming to Christ in the first place, and it doesn't die easy in the Christian life, this impulse. So two questions. One, I do want to ask for you to consider, is it possible that you are rejecting Christ? If you reject Christ now still in your heart, unwilling to acknowledge all these things that we're seeing about him, that he is God, he's king, he's savior, he's the only way for our sin to be forgiven, to be right with God. If you are rejecting that over uh, Christ's authority in your life uh, for lack of willingness, not lack of evidence, I would want to urge you to reconsider Maybe like these leaders, you understand that there are things you hold dear um, that must be relinquished to yield to Jesus. And right now, you, you say, it's not worth it. I would ask you to reconsider and trust Jesus. Take him at his word when he says, trust me. In the end, it will not have been a sacrifice on your part. You will lose nothing in the end. It feels like it, but trust me. And Christians, just want to urge us again, we will fight this throughout our entire lives. Our ambition as Christians may be, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. And, and, and that's a hymn I think we should sing because it's an, if, we, if we are saying it is an aspiration, that's the desire of our heart. We want to surrender everything. But that hymn never describes our daily life, does it? I've never once honestly sung that hymn if it's be, de- describing me, Right? Every day of my Christian life has been some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I freely give, some to him I stubbornly keep, some to him I I, I section off and say, uh, don't go in there, right? Would you ask the Holy Spirit this morning to help you see where are the gaps in your life between saying, Lord, Lord, and doing what he says? That's what Jesus boiled it down to. How can you, you can't do both. If I'm Lord, then you do what I say. And we all have this gap. 
And God is gracious to forgive us for all of the gap. And he's also gracious by his spirit to help us close the gap by degrees. So that's number one. Number two, it's more brief, but it's sobering to me. And that is that there's a point where Jesus has nothing more to say. There is a point in rejecting Jesus' authority where he has nothing more to add to the conversation. It's a scary thought. I think that, that reality is, is the central, if not, one of the central, if not the central driving motivation of the whole book of Hebrews. The whole epistle of Hebrews is a call to this. It begins by saying, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God has spoken uniquely and, and finally, completely through Jesus and what he has done at the cross and, and empty tomb. And, and he has said something that he has nothing further to say about. And so then the plea in Hebrews goes like this. Take care, lest there be in any of you brothers an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It acknowledges that the deceitfulness of sin has a hardening effect on us. Shipwrecks faith keeps people from ever turning to Christ in the first place. And then the the repeated plea in Hebrews three times just begs, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. What makes that plea so urgent is this reality. There is a point where Jesus has nothing more to say. If all of the evidence, all of the revelation that Jesus has now given that we have here in the scriptures and the the Holy Spirit is attesting to, if we harden our heart against that, there's a point where Jesus has nothing more to add. And so I would, again, appeal to you this morning as you're considering this Jesus, everything we've sung about him, what we've read about him, maybe you've been here for weeks and weeks and through the series and Mark and you've been presented week after week with evidence of, of Jesus and, and you're wrestling with this, by what authority does he do these things question? And this morning, there's something in your heart saying, I need to yield to him, but I don't want to. I would humbly warn you, don't walk out of here saying no. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. This this simple little scene illustrates something uh, beautiful, I think, also about the gospel. I just want to finish with this. I I thought this week uh, about this scene and was reminded of Joseph all the way back in Genesis. And, And what God did through Joseph and through Joseph's life was this example and shadow of what now Jesus has done in a much more profound way. But think just for a minute, back in Genesis, here's Joseph and all of his brothers hate him. They're jealous of him. Why? Well, he's had this dream that one day he's going to be in a place of authority over them and they're going to bow down to him. And they do not like that, remember? So they conspire. How do we get rid of this punk kid? And at first they're going to kill him and they chicken out from that, but then they sell him to slave traders and they tell their dad that he got killed. Problem solved. He goes down in chains to Egypt. Life goes from worse to worse to worse. He suffers tremendously 
as a result of what they handed him over to. But through that, God exalts him to this place of high authority in Egypt, second only to the the Pharaoh, where he's able to make a plan and prepare for this famine that God has warned about. And when that famine finally hits his family and his scoundrel brothers, and they come down to Egypt looking for food, Joseph gets to be face-to-face with them. And do you remember what he says? He has mercy on them. And he actually says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because of what Joseph suffered, he was exalted to a place of high authority where he was able to save many from famine, including the very brothers who sold him into slavery. So here we are in these last few days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And here he's standing with his brothers, right? His fellow Jews. And they are looking for a way to destroy him. And they're going to hand him over uh, to the Roman authorities to be crucified and publicly shamed and humiliated and killed. And what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because of the suffering of Jesus, that they, these men are handing him over to He is now exalted to the highest place, deserving every knee, bowing to him, and he can now turn and offer the bread of life, forgiveness of sin, and eternal life, even to these scoundrel brothers. The gospel has grace even for these men with their stubborn, hard hearts. That should be an encouragement to you. You may have rejected Jesus' authority over your life, for a long time and maybe openly and and egregiously. And even this morning, Jesus' words to you are, you can be forgiven. That's what I died for. There's There's a warning in this. I think many of these men, we don't have any indication that they ever uh, turned. Get to Acts, same group of men are pulling Peter and John into hauling them into court and beating them and threatening them to not keep talking about Jesus. So there's a warning here about hardening your heart, but there is also grace. Paul was one of these kind of men. He may not have been a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was a Pharisee. He was in a position of power. In the book of Acts, he's got the authority to round up Christians and throw them in jail. He's standing giving his thumbs up as Stephen is stoned to death uh, for, for the gospel. And God turns his life around, opens his eyes, turns him from being a persecutor to the persecuted. I want to close with his words. This is the testimony here of one of those scoundrel brothers, a Pharisee who wanted Jesus and his followers destroyed, but eventually yielded to him. This is what he said. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and he appointed me to his service even though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The grace of our Lord overflows for people who act ignorantly in unbelief. The saying is trustworthy and it deserves full acceptance. I hope it does here among us, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, 
so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Does that sound like a man who thought yielding his authority to Christ was a loss? <laughs> no. And, 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 and his yielding uh, probably had more suffering than collectively in this room maybe we're, we're going to experience for the, the sake of Jesus' name. Maybe not. But at the end of his life, he's not talking about loss. All he can talk about is what he gained in that transaction. Isn't that awesome? Can we, I want to take one minute for you to just quiet, be, pr- uh, be quiet, pray silently before we sing and, and conclude. Uh, as a way of, of, of being taught uh, by God. Would you pray right now silently? Lord, what do, you, what do you have me to hear right now? How do you want me to respond? And just take a moment and then we'll, we'll close. Jesus, we thank you that you set aside your privilege and your power and your right and authority to humble yourself, to be born, to live, to suffer, to be tempted, to obey in our place, to die in our place, to suffer such shame and humiliation at the hands of the very ones you came to save and lead. We just thank you for your grace. We also uh, we thank you for your power and your authority and, that, and we thank you that that is our great hope of the things we sang at the beginning of this service that one day creation will no longer be in bondage to decay but will be resurrected as we will be to be with you forever unbroken, undivided hearts this is our glorious and eternal future we thank you Jesus that your power and authority uh, is the, the guarantee for us that it will happen and Lord I pray that you'd help us to be people um, who find it easier and easier to submit to your authority, to love your authority, to trust your authority. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and and finish with the chorus.